0: Hello, and welcome to The Verge Podcast, a part of the college and career ministry at First Baptist Dallas. I'm Kyle Wilson, and it's a pleasure to be a part of your day. I want to personally invite you to join us at our college and career ministry any Sunday at 9.15 a.m. or Wednesday night at 7 p.m. For more information, check out firstdallas.org college. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday teachings, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's do it. Kyle. Hey guys, I'm Caleb. I'm Kyle's intern. Kyle is gone today, and so you're stuck with me. Uh, But we are going to go ahead and just continue through the book of James. And so if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to do James 1 19 through 27 today. But before we dive in, if you were gone last week, let me just do a little recap on the background information of James. So we know that the book of James is written by the half brother of Jesus, Jacob. Uh, he became the leader of a church in Jerusalem, one of the first Christian communities, and this is where Peter went out to start these new churches. And so, during James's, otherwise known as Jacob, his during his 20 years of leadership, he guided the church through famine, poverty, and persecution. And so, this book is a eclectic legacy of all of his wisdom. While this book is technically an epistle, it is not like Paul's other letters to the churches that address specific problem within those communities. Rather, it's written to the 12 tribes in dispersion, meaning that the believers who have scattered from Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen, this is one of the reasons why this book is so powerful, because it's challenging and encouraging to any and every community of faith, both in the past and in the present. This book does not teach new theology. It seeks to challenge how the Christian reading it lives. Its main goal is that followers of Christ would become truly wise by living out Jesus's summary of the scriptures to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we open up to the book of James, it's a roadmap through these pages. And along this way, we see six different points that it's vital for the Christian to recognize. And so last week, Kyle covered those first five points and they were one, endurance through trials makes us perfect. Two, God gives wisdom to those who seek it in faith. Three, financial struggles force us to rely on God because wealth is temporal. Four, trials and temptations is life's way of trying to convince you that God isn't a good and generous God. Five, Jesus is worth everything. And so the last point that we're going to talk about today is six, and that is the results of hearing God's word is action. To follow the Lord necessitates action. To linger, if we linger in a state of idleness, it's futile. Oswald chambers has this quote and he says, if I obey Jesus Christ, the redemption of God will flow through me into the lives of others because behind the deeds of obedience is the reality of an almighty God. And so with that quote in mind, guys, let's open up and let's start in verse 19. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So let's start with verse 19. We see here that James gives us three commands. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James is echoing some, some traditional Jewish wisdom here. And this is very important for us to understand because when we understand quick to hear this first command, it's so much more than just quickly listening. It means also, it's coupled with the idea that when we are quick to hear, we're quick to act on it because genuine faith acts. And the second point, he says, I'm sorry, the third one, he says it's slow to anger. Slow to anger does not mean that all human anger is wrong or sinful. However, when we get quick-tempered and we have the selfish anger of the world, it not only betrays a lack of trust in God, but it reveals a lack of trust in God of love for others today we're all quite aware that sure the, Bib- the bible grants us righteous anger we all like to joke around the story oh will jesus flip tables uh and in no way am i denying that there is not a place for the righteous anger of god however i think we should be cautious about when we try to justify our brash anger when we take on the mantle of righteous indignation we are implicitly claiming to speak for god Such anger certainly has a rightful place, but it should only be summoned after a careful and diligent exercise of prayer and meditation. We should be slow to our anger. It should not be something that's quick about every time we encounter sin. And so, moving on into verse 20, so we have these three commands, but in verse 20, we're given the why. Why are we to be quick to hear? Why are we to be slow to speak? And why are we to be slow to anger? He tells us in verse 20, because it does not produce the righteousness of God. What does James mean when he says the righteousness of God? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Today, we seldom hear Christians talk about the righteousness of God. And it's so fascinating because people, we always talk about wanting to be, we want to be more holy. We want to be more spiritual, whatever that means. Um, And, but I'm never I don't think I've ever heard a Christian say, I want to be more righteous, and maybe it's because we just don't want to appear to be self-righteous. Um, however, I think it's really fascinating. I was doing some, hist- some church history research. And I that during the Protestant Reformation, one of the emphasized themes during this time period was the idea of the righteousness of God. After all, on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus told us that we should seek after God's righteousness. When we look at the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for righteousness, it's chedek. It has to do with what is straight in opposition to that which is crooked. It refers to that which is right in opposition to that which is wrong. Its grammatical meaning is very important. When you come into Greek, it's dikaios. It means to declare righteous. Every act of God is righteous and fair. The righteousness of God is the absolute truth that when God acts, it is always fair and just. God never does anything unfair. Psalms 145, 17 reads, The Lord is righteous in all of his ways. He is righteous in what he does. So when we are not slow to our anger, when we are not slow to speak, and when we are not quick to hear and act, we do not produce the righteousness of God. And so here James is giving us a proper filter that our filter that we should live our entire lives with is, does this point back, will this action or lack of action or attitude, will it point back to the righteous character of God? And then as we move on to verse 21, he says, Therefore, and so we know that this next statement is going to be in light of understanding that we are to find our deepest desires and satisfaction in Christ, right? John Piper said it best, God is most glorified in you and you are most satisfied in him. And so, therefore, in light of this idea of producing the righteousness character of God, he says, put away all filth and rampant wickedness. So we see here that we don't only take on this righteousness of God, but we must also strip away this filth and rampantness and sin. When we truly know God and know him for who he is and his character, I'm not talking about knowing theology or church history. I mean, if we truly have an intimate relationship with us, when he's walked through the valley of the shadow of death with us clinging to him tightly, do we have an unfettered spirit, abounding joy, and absolute pureness of a child who has stripped away this rampantness and stripped away this wickedness to know God? My point here guys is that when we truly have a deep intimate relationship with our God, our losses cease to matter. Us picking up our crosses, it ceases to matter because when we strip away this filth and rampantness, it's of no it is nothing to us because what we've gained is so much greater. This gain, how often do we let our hearts wander from what we've gained? If we had a true weight of the cross and of Christ dying for us and if we had kept the sacrifice of Christ's flesh being nailed to the cross at the forefront of everything we did, all thoughts of abandoning sin, of quitting having sex with our significant other, or of stopping our porn addiction, or stopping all these sins that we struggle with, of giving up this fun lifestyle, it would simply banish from our minds if we understood what we had gained. Next, Paul says, I'm sorry, not Paul, James says, repeat, receive with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so we know that based off this context, the implanted word is God's message of new life, salvation, and redemption through him. Now we have to understand guys, based off this context, this is not a command to be converted. He's already writing to believers, remember? And so it's a command to accept the Bible wholly as truth every part of it, and to accept its precepts as binding and to seek to live by them. Christians who have truly been born again demonstrate that the word has transformed them by their humble acceptance of it as authority and guide for their life. It's able to save their souls because the only way we are saved and the only way we can find true freedom is when we experience the unadulterate, the unadulterated joy. That it only comes through a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, and so James isn't saying that reading reading the Old Testament scriptures or, or reading these letters doesn't save their souls. It's through reading these, it's through reading the Bible that we have today, that we see this covenant relationship that we get to have with Jesus Christ, and so that's why it's able to save our souls because, it points us all back to Jesus because He is the Savior of our souls. In verses twenty-two through twenty-five. So we're moving on to the next section. So that's section number one. Section number two, then we have the main idea of the whole passage here. Verse 22, the crux of the entire argument here is, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James is strenuously opposing any sort of hearing of the word that does not lead to doing. We deceive ourselves today if we believe that worshiping God is merely showing up on a Sunday morning And yet it doesn't change anything about how we live the rest of the week. We worship God in everything that we say and do. Our careers, our music, the photos we take, the adventures we go on, they can all be a form of worship to God. But today we've adopted this form of dualism that says I can put God in a box, take him out on Sunday morning or maybe Wednesday night or Tuesday night. Um, But other than that, I can just tuck my relationship with Him away and live however I want and do whatever I want the rest of the week. But it doesn't work like that. If this is how you navigate your relationship with the sovereign Lord of the universe... I call you to wrestle more with what you call a relationship with God. Christ did not condescend himself down onto earth in the form of a man to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, and to conquer death so that you can have cheap grace. Bonhoeffer expounds on this idea of cheap grace. It's exactly that it's doing whatever you want to do, knowing that you'll be forgiven, and saying, Oh, I can I not resolve this conflict, or I can just ignore this person, or I can just, I don't need to help those in need. God will forgive me. This is cheap grace, and it's not the grace that we see in the Bible. And so James makes it clear. He says, we have two choices, obedience or disobedience. And your life then is going to produce fruit from one of those two outcomes. And that's what this next analogy is about to explain. Verses 23 through 25. I'm going to read it again. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. And so James here is giving us this illustration of what's looked at. So we have someone looks into a mirror versus the perfect law, how people look at it, looking, just looking at it or leaving, like looking at it and leaving versus gazing intently into it. And then the result of this looking, forgetting versus actively doing. I want to make a quick little note here that James does not believe that we're supposed to find these resources within ourselves to become perfect, obedient, active doers. James is confident; it does, our confidence is not rested in our human abilities for keeping the laws, but our confidence is in the life-generating power of the Word of Truth. And so, back to this metaphor. So, this metaphor of a person looking into a mirror and subsequently forgetting what he or she looks like corresponds to not doing because in hearing the word we get a glimpse of truth about oneself but we fail to do it because it's purely momentary and external it's a mere reflection it's not a, a real thing and so if we want to fully understand this analogy guys we need to understand that the mirrors of the ancient world were not the mirrors that we take selfies in today in the ancient world, mirrors were not everyday objects. They weren't in every bathroom. They weren't on our phone cases. And they didn't... They What they were, they weren't these... They weren't these super highly silver polished uh, mirrors that we have today. They were... They were very rare. And so... All it was was a polished out metal surface that they would bang out with a mallet. And so... The image was often very distorted, and it was really blurry, and most people of this society didn't even really know what their faces looked like because, one, the mirrors didn't give an accurate representation, and two, they didn't look at the mirrors very often. And so, when we look in this mirror, one forgets what we look like, partly because the image is unclear because of these ancient mirrors, and partly because the image is so rarely encountered. James wants his readers to contrast this idea of these ancient mirrors with the image of God and is seen by looking into the perfect law, which is the word of God, and continuing to do so. The one who steadfastly gazes into God's law sees the much clearer image of God constantly and remembers because it's firmly implanted in his or her mind. It's in this intense and constant looking into the word of God that, unlike looking into a blurry and unclean mirror, it's transformative. The law is not a law that is a list of rules to follow, but it's a law of freedom. And it frees us because God, it, it's through that that God reveals who we are, and most importantly, who God is, and the relationship between the two. And John Calvin explains it this way in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says that when we look at God, that when we study God, we also learn about ourselves because we see what we're not. And vice versa. When we study ourselves, we learn about God because we see who He's not. And so that's why this the Bible is so freeing. And it's not, it's not this constrictive thing that says, Oh, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But it says, This is who you are. You are a child of mine, and I love you. Guys, we are all prone to be forgetful hearers. And James makes it clear: the only remedy is to constantly, consistently, and continuously. Read and meditate and study the word of God. Finishing up the passage in verse 26, James says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see here in verse 26, James is appealing back to what he said at the beginning of the paragraph in verse 19. When we brittle our tongue, which is defined by being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, it's a way in which not only do we become doers of the word, but we embody the righteousness of God. And then in verse 27, he's further explaining what it means to be a doer of the word. So in addition to brittling our tongue, we must also do this. We must visit the orphans and widows while also remaining unstained from the world. Psalm 68.5 says that he is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. God himself is concerned for them and so should we. James is telling us like, yes, we need to remain pure as the light that is in us, but we we should not run away from society. We need to be in the world, but we need to not be of it. We need to be in the world. We need to help the low and the poor. And we need to visit those in society that are looked down upon. We need to learn to love the unlovable. But also in doing this, as we go into the dark depths of the world, we need to be remain pure before God. Christians whose relationship with God is pure will imitate their father by intervening, intervening to help the helpless. And being unstained from the world means not thinking and acting in accordance with the value system of those around us. We need to not only have a purity of heart, but it must be in conjunction with a purity of action. That's what James is saying here. The whole idea, guys, is that the result of hearing God's word must be action. And if we didn't act on it, we didn't hear it correctly. This isn't an option, guys. There are only two outcomes from hearing the word of God. Obedience or disobedience. What will you choose?